Hi, I'm Keith Law. Welcome to episode 24 of The Keith Law Show. My guest today will be my longtime friend, Joe Sheehan, who writes, I think, an essential email newsletter about baseball, which you can subscribe to at joesheehan.com. That's J-O-E-S-H-E-E-H-A-N.com. We'll talk about this slow-moving disaster that seems to be the Major League Baseball season. In the meantime, a few administrative notes. I had two columns go up last week, since last week's podcast at least. I have been doing scouting notebooks, and we'll continue doing these as long as we have games, where I look at a number of young players, whether rookies or maybe just young players who haven't established themselves so far, and just try to watch what you're seeing on TV and give you a professional opinion on what I see from them and a little bit of what I forecast going forward. So sometimes I'm just trying to confirm what we already know. For example, Dustin Mays made a couple of starts so far. He was in the first of those two columns and wrote about the off-the-charts quality stuff that we saw from him, which we kind of knew he had, but it's nice to see him bring that, especially since his first outing was kind of an unplanned spot start in lieu of Clayton Kershaw. I think that probably secured a spot for Dustin May somewhere on the pitching staff the rest of the year. Also looking for players maybe who've made some kind of change. So if you notice somebody on maybe on your favorite team, you have a question, you want to know, is this guy any different than he was last year? Feel free to send me a note. You can tweet it at me at Keith Law. You can drop it on Facebook at Keith Law Writer. Happy to look at players you suggested. Somebody after the first post, uh, I think I saw a comment on The Athletic. I don't respond to comments, but I do sometimes read them. Somebody asked about Kyle Lewis, so I made sure to include Kyle Lewis, the outfielder for the Mariners. In the second of those posts, which went up on Friday, July 31st, I don't have the next one scheduled yet. I'm just waiting to see a few more young players either come up or maybe move into bigger roles. We do have Nick Madrigal in the majors now. He would be in the next post whenever I do write that up. So stay tuned. It'll be up at some at some point this week. I will gather enough notes and enough players and write another one of those notebook columns. So far, the response from you guys has been fairly positive. I would also like to mention again that my new book, The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves, is out now. It came out in April from HarperCollins. You can buy it anywhere you buy books. I have uh, been pleased to see a little more interest in the book, particularly from the radio side, now that baseball is back and playing again. You can find it anywhere you buy books. I do recommend bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores. If you can't find an independent bookstore open near you where you're able to buy the book. Many thanks to all of you who've bought the book so far. Many of you have tweeted or written or even put up little reviews of the book uh, saying that you like it. And I really I want to make, uh, make it clear to everyone that I do appreciate that. Uh, it was also asked on Twitter the other day by someone, how do I find out about any of your content uh, other than hoping I see a tweet from you? Probably the best way is to sign up for my own free email newsletter, which is at tinyletter.com slash Keith Law. I do not send it out on a regular schedule because I'm not that disciplined. But when I do have new content out, I always make sure to list all of the content I've done since the last email newsletter at the bottom of each of those. Plus, it contains some original writing that just kind of doesn't fit anywhere else. Last two quick administrative notes. Wanted to mention also, I will be doing a little more board game content. The board gaming convention Gen Con was supposed to happen this past weekend. Obviously, we couldn't do that because of the pandemic. They did hold a virtual convention, Gen Con Online. I attended a few events virtually and do have some notes on some interesting game releases coming out through the end of the year. Uh, looks like that's going to go up on paste at some point in the next couple of weeks, probably a week and a half from now. So keep an eye out for that. 
And finally, if you are listening to this podcast, but you're not actually a subscriber yet to The Athletic, you can get 40% off of a new subscription to the site by going to theathletic.com slash claw. That's theathletic.com slash K-L-A-W for 40% off a new subscription. And those interested in advertising on the show can do that by going to theathletic.com slash podcast ads. Now, it's my pleasure to be joined by my longtime friend, Joe Sheehan. We wrote together once upon a time for a place called Baseball Prospectus that seems so far in the distant past. You can now find Joe's work at his newsletter, to which you can subscribe, and you should subscribe, at joesheehan.com. Joe, thank you so much for joining me. Keith, good to be on. I'm a big fan of the pod. Thank you. Uh, so I want to start, at least, with your most recent newsletter, which went out on Sunday, Sunday night, I think. Uh, where you answered a reader's question, maybe an article on how long you think the season will last. And I loved the way you answered this. It was, and you and I are of very similar minds, I think, on this. You might be a little further in one direction. Why don't you describe, it however you want, how you answer that question? How much more baseball are we going to get? Yeah, I'm pretty pessimistic. And you know, there's a lot of unknowns here, but we're two weeks into this. We've had one breakout with the Marlins, a second with the Cardinals. And that's one of the things that's going to determine how long we can play. It's not, it was never going to be nobody's going to get infected. It was, can we stop breakouts from happening? And it certainly seems so far that once a player gets infected, the spread happens pretty quickly. So teams are one way to take it. You know, how many teams being sidelined would it take to stop the season. We know it's not one. Um, and remember, once one team is sidelined, you know, that takes out basically three others. Uh, the, you know, the Nationals uh, couldn't play. The uh, Who else were the Marlins supposed to play this week? Uh, the Orioles, uh, they ended up playing the Yankees. They can dance fast for you know one team, maybe two teams at a time. If it ever got to four or five, I think that would be the thing that would make it shut down. And frankly, I'm not sure baseball at this point thinks it's going to get a 900-game season in. I think they're looking to get in as many games as possible that will allow them to have a postseason, whether that's an average of 30 a team, 35, 40. I'm not sure what the threshold of legitimacy is, but this entire regular season can largely be seen as a project to get to a postseason. So that was the point. I was, if you didn't bring that up, I was going to just say it because this to me was the aha. And the, the number one thing I wanted to talk about just out of that specific specific newsletter that you sent was your argument. I don't disagree at all, but your argument is essentially this whole exercise is about Major League Baseball having a postseason for the television revenue. And I did not entirely think of it that way going in. But as you've banged this drum in particular, and other people have as well, the more I've thought about it, the more I've seen you talk about it, the more I've had to answer questions about this, the more I've realized that kind of makes a lot of intuitive sense. I don't think anyone, I haven't even asked anyone at MLB because they're not going to say, yeah, absolutely, that's right. If they say, I mean, no one's going to say it, obviously. But that's where the money is. And expanding the postseason the way they did in almost an you know, sort of ad hoc fashion seems to only support your conclusion that this was all maybe even a bit of a charade just to get to October so we could put playoff baseball on TV. I don't think it was a charade. I think the players want to play as many games as possible. I think the league knows it has to put on some semblance of a regular season. We saw that fight play out in June when they were negotiating the terms of how long the season would be. You know, the players starting at 114, the owners starting at, I think, six, and eventually they met, <laughs> they met at 60. Uh, but there, there are some facts that we know, which is that the regular season costs the teams money. 
they're paying the players. They're, there's no fans in the stands. They are getting enough revenue from local cable contracts and the national TV money that I don't think they're losing $640,000 a game, which was an early number, but the playoffs are all profit. They don't pay the players other than the, the share of the money that they're going to get. They've added this extra round that's theoretically going to generate you know a bunch of revenue. Uh, and that's where the, the league needs to make its profit. I think they'll put up with any kind of, of regular season as long as it lets them say on September 27th, here are our 16 teams. And that's consistent with what we saw in the NHL and the NBA. The NHL and the NBA, the NHL said, okay, we'll just punt the rest of our, our regular season, expand our playoffs, and bubble up two teams. The NBA said, we'll leave – seven teams nobody cares about behind kind of may have a little bit of a play in round plus get everybody back in shape and then go to our playoffs. So if MLB kind of says, well, we're not that concerned about the regular season, as long as we have that bracket, those brackets, I think it's consistent with how these leagues have, have acted. The MLS tournament was similar. Um, the NWSL, the women's soccer league basically did the same thing, just did a tournament instead of a season. So this seems to be where we're headed. Do you think they had an, this is unanswerable. Uh, I mean, there's no definite answer to this, but do you think it was easier for the NBA and the NHL to say, eh, we got enough. Let's just move to some kind of postseason tournament format. Cause I've seen a lot of criticism. Why didn't MLB just do a bubble? And part of that is logistics, right? They were talking about doing some kind of bubble thing in Arizona and Florida, which as it turns out would have been the worst idea possible. If you think it, you know, unless you're one of these hoaxer people, those are pretty much the two worst States in which to hold any of these kinds of, you know, public gatherings. So, that was probably never going to happen anyway. But at least in the other sports, they could just say, you know what, just cut it off right here. We're going to pick our teams, just go right to the postseason. Whereas MLB, so far at least, has been the only sport that's been required to actually plan out essentially a whole year. Their, their whole not, Nothing had really started when the pandemic hit. We may see the NFL have to go through the same kind of thing in the very near future, but MLB was the only one of all these leagues, that, like everything you just discussed, that hadn't started and had the entire calendar ahead of them. Right. This was the fight I want to say was having in May and June when people were like, oh, look, the NBA is going to do this and the NHL is going to do this. Well, they were able, as you said, Keith, just say, we'll just leave a quarter of our teams home. Nobody cares about them anymore. Nobody cares about the Red Wings or, okay, I can't name a bad basketball team off the top of my head. The Knicks. Nobody cares about the Knicks. Um, the Washington Generals, right? That's a- and, and also from a revenue standpoint, they'd already the players had gotten paid. The owners yep. had gotten their local money. They'd gotten their local TV. In fact, one of the reasons the NBA is having this kind of pre-playoff round is to fulfill local local TV deals, I believe. A lot of them have to get to a certain number of games or there, there's clawbacks. Baseball didn't have that option. Baseball mm-hmm. couldn't leave eight teams home and just say, we're going to play a 2014 playoff. You, you can't do that. So again, this is all about timing. If the novel coronavirus hits our shores in September last year or September this this year. It's an entirely different conversation. The NBA, the NHL, and the NFL now have to deal with how do we even have a season at all. And MLB could have just taken 12 teams and sent them to Arizona for a week or um, a month. And that's the other thing, the length of time. Asking NBA players to bubble for whatever the run-up is and then a playoff structure. Well, in three weeks, you know, most of those guys are going to be gone anyway. MLB, mm-hmm. you would have been talking about a three to four month bubble. And I don't think that was practical to ask a thousand guys with wives and girlfriends and children to bubble up for four months. I don't think that would have been fair. So I think that was the player's objection as well. So I don't like these cross league comparisons. You're also seeing people say, well, what about the European soccer leagues? Well, the key word in that is European. Mm-hmm. Well, if the, you know, the, the EPL can do it. Well, again, that's England. And it, it, you, we have to put the U S leagues in a different category from world sports. 
So let's talk a little bit about what's happened on the field so far. Um, I do want to ask you about any players that have jumped out to you one way or another, but you also wrote a newsletter at the end of last week about the, you called it the shape of the game, which I particularly like because I also think you, you talked a lot about strikeout rates. You talked a lot about just sort of what the game looks like as played on the field, but you feel like the shape of the strike zone is the under-discussed, nothing like this is going to get discussed a lot, but the under-discussed story of even the last couple of years, which is that there's a ridiculous rate of striking out. I feel you've been on this for years now, and so far, at least, it seems like the strikeout rates are higher than ever. And I think I share your concerns. I want you to elaborate that this is probably not great for the long-term health of the sport. I want to say is in 2014, I did a big four-part series that basically was like, there's too many strikeouts. We need to. And at the time, I was more thinking in terms of roster limits, cap rosters, cap pitchers on a roster at 11 which mm-hmm. will force teams to choose for uh, endurance rather than just velocity. Mm-hmm. And I thought you could get at it from that direction. I no longer think you can. I am pretty much a firm believer that everything we don't like about baseball has to do with 60 feet, six inches. It's been 127 years since baseball said, you know what? We're gonna, not only are we going to let the pitchers, the pit, we've let the pitchers throw overhand. We got to move the mound back. And they set the box of 60 feet, six inches. The average pitcher was five, four, he weighed about 110 pounds. Keithy looked like you. <laughs> and he didn't get extension. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know what guys threw in 1893, but I'll bet it was something in the low 80s. I'll ask my alter ego, old Haas. <laughs> um, if you go back to the early days of that, the earliest days we have velocity data over at Fangrass. I want to say the average fastball was 89 at the start, roughly at the start of the century, 2002. And now it's 93 and a half. And you just had this army of pitchers now who get to the majors and they throw 95. The average relief pitcher throws, what, 95 now? The average Mm -hmm. relief pitcher. Everything comes down to the fact that 60 feet, six inches has been closed and closed and closed. So what we know as the launch angle revolution, and it is a good way to put runs on the board, but it's also a reaction to the fact that you can't string four singles together. Mm -hmm. Strikeouts have been more common than hits since 2018. Strikeouts are, I believe, 40% more common than singles now. Everything that we think we know about baseball was shaped in the 1890s when strikeout, the strikeout rate was maybe 5-6%, and there wasn't a lot of power in the game. But when you have a strikeout rate of 24%, and you have a league BABIP this year so far of 280, and you have singles just completely disappearing, all you can do is hit homers to score runs. So you have this incredibly stagnant game where one-run strategies don't make any sense. Trying to steal bases or bunt doesn't make – I mean, not that it was ever that smart, but, you know, you could have arguments. But in a 24% strikeout rate league with a 280 BABIP, all there is to do is swing for the fences. Strikeouts, walks, and homers. A lot of people like this game. I personally think it's gone too far. And beyond that, nothing is stopping these trends. In a year, it's going to be a quarter of all plate appearances end in a strikeout. In the year after that's going to be 26%. When do we step in and say, this isn't entertaining anymore? I mean, I'm with you, and I have generally resisted the, the baseball is dying people or that you know, you're going to lose fans. because Well, one, because I thought a lot of that was motivated by things other than the evidence. And, and two, I was not particularly bothered by, okay, well, hitters are you know, swinging more. That's probably a good thing. And we're seeing more home runs. Well, fans like home runs, so that's not necessarily a bad thing. Now, I think two things changed. One is the the use of the happy fun ball the last couple of years, which as far as I can tell this year, it's not any different, uh, at least not uh, 
in how it's playing out. Maybe the physical characteristics of the ball are different, but so far in the small sample, it looks like the ball is still flying like it did last year. But the other thing, I guess just phrase it this way. The other thing I've argued that baseball should do is raise the bottom of the strike zone in particular, that there were too many pitchers and probably still are too many pitchers who are able to get strike calls at or even just below the knee. And those pitches just aren't hittable. And the bottom of the strike zone had been creeping down for a little while during the same period that you were outlining in the early 2010s where strikeout rates were going up. I feel like at least if you raise the bottom of the zone a little bit, let alone maybe going to automated balls and strikes, then a strike is a pitch that that pitchers can and should be able to hit uh, in theory. Whereas a lot of those pitches that were getting called strikes were either not hittable or you couldn't really make good contact. And so hitters were left with a damned if you do, damned if you don't choice. And I don't know that that solves any problems, but maybe it mitigates this trend that you're talking about of strikeouts that just never stop going up. Well, this gets back to the initial idea of a strike zone to begin with. When baseball started, you just threw the ball in. It was more like a softball pitcher. The, Mm -hmm. The pitcher just initiates the action. The action is in the field, running and throwing and catching. The strike zone is intended. The purpose of a strike zone is to get balls put in play. Pitchers are supposed to throw hittable pitches to the batters so that they can hit the ball and then we play baseball. Mm-hmm. And what it's become is a tool for keeping the ball out of play, working to the edges, catcher framing, which is just fooling the umpire into thinking a ball is a strike. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, working, you may talk about the lower end of that zone. It's twofold. It's because of this velocity increase, the time a hitter has to make that decision gets a little bit smaller every year. So when you say the, you know, the bottom of the zone is a strike, that's also where the pitcher is going to be throwing a lot of breaking stuff. So the, the batter is basically choosing, is this going to be a strike that I have to swing at, or is it a pitch I can take and, and let go? And that's why you see a lot of strikeouts on guys swinging over the ball on a breaking ball in the dirt. Just watch games. It's just fastball low in the zone, strike, foul ball, and then the pitcher just starts working the, the edges of the zone, particularly low. I don't think you can separate that from the automated ball and strike calling. Because if you get to the automated ball and strike calling, you're probably going to have to redefine the strike zone. Most of the experiments so far have indicated that a lot of non-hittable pitches are getting picked up. So one of the things we've lost this year is, I think, is uh, progression towards that goal, towards an automated strike zone. I believe they were going to use the automated strike zone in the Florida State League this year after the Atlantic League last year. Um, This is coming, but it might be set back. You have to play a lot of baseball games with this in other leagues before I think you're going to be ready to port it to the major leagues and losing that, I think it's just going to contribute to this. I'm a firm believer that if you have an automated strike zone, you're probably going to have offense go up, but in a way that is entertaining as opposed to just three true outcomes being 36% of, of, of all at bats. So let's try to talk about something positive here. What have you seen anywhere in the majors this year, any particular players, let's say that, you've liked or enjoyed or that you know, players who've maybe impressed or surprised you based on what you previously thought of them? I tend to focus on defense and mm-hmm. there hasn't been a lot of it. Um, there's been a lot of sloppiness <laughs> in the early. It was a lot of bad defense. A lot of bad defense, night. a lot of bad base ring, which I'm surprised. I mean, Nolan Arenado made a play that, you know, no, it's he was way out uh, in the foul territory, made a play. Um, but I think the command, pitch, the top end pitching has really shown up. Uh, you look at Kyle Hendricks first, start nearly throwing a Maddox who expected a complete game in the first not on the first night of the season when all we talked about was how these pitchers weren't going to work deep into games you look mm-hmm. at what Shane Bieber's done Shane Bieber against the twins last Thursday it's easily the best start I've seen just stuff command location uh, really a lot of fun to watch we'll get you know Jacob DeGrom's had two starts um he starts he started Monday night too I 
taping this on Monday. Sorry if that breaks Kefab or whatever, but um, I'm going to be watching him pretty excitedly tonight. The top end starting pitchers have been to me the most entertaining parts of the game. Obviously, everybody saw Aaron Judge on Sunday night, the two homers, the, the raw power that he has. So, I mean, I think that, that, that there's been a lot of excitement at that top end, but it's going to be strange. It's going to be hard for us to figure out like who's good and who's not, who's different and who's not. Like, uh, the, the Mets have a horrible defense. We know that it's even worse than it was last year. You know, what team is going to be the other way? What team had a bad defense last year and has improved it a lot this year? Sitting here now, 10, you know, three games in in some cases, it, it's harder for me to, to know. I don't know if we're even going to be in August or September and be able to make those determinations. But, I mean, like I say, when the stars show up, it's fun. When the new guys show up, Nick Madrigal with the four-hit game, that's fun. We're still getting some of that stuff. It, it's just... Once you stop focusing on that, it's all this other stuff that, you know, we've spent 20 minutes talking about. All right. So last question, since you brought up Madrigal, um, and this isn't really specifically about him, but just about him getting recalled. Somebody even asked me in my chat on Friday, uh, the chat I did on my own site, about prospects maybe getting called up, the risk of calling up a prospect, and then suddenly you have the season canceled and you just Nick Madrigal, who has, I think, like 12 major league at-bats right now. What if Nick Madrigal gets essentially two-thirds of a season of service time or whatever it would maybe more for being called up for three games, whatever, the, whatever, however the, their formula would work. If you call up a prospect now and the season gets canceled in a week, you just gave him a st- substantial amount of service time and maybe put him on the 40-man roster a year early and got just a couple of games out of him. I hadn't given that a lot of thought because I was so focused on are we going to have a season or not. I thought that was a pretty rational point. Do you think, do you guess that we will see that fact, the possibility of a canceled season, uh, ignoring the postseason, affect teams' decisions of whether to bring up, like, uh, say, a Spencer Howard, who probably should be up with the Phillies now. The name I think of in this is Dylan Carlson, mm-hmm. who I would have expected to be up on that, you know, we waited a week, now he can't become yep. a free agent until after 26. I can do math. 26. Now we'll put him on. But if you're the Cardinals now, especially the Cardinals, who've now just had this breakout, yeah, there's risk because if this if, if you call him up and the season isn't played at all, as you say, likely is not that player would get the service. On. But you, in the case of a player who hasn't been called up yet, you can actually steal another year. Yep. You could conceivably not bring him up this year. The season gets banged after 30 games. Maybe you make the playoffs, maybe you don't. But then at the start of 2021, just do the same thing. And now you've actually gotten 27 out of the deal. I'm not defending this. I'm saying that if you're the Cardinals and you've seen what could happen – we got that, you know, the Marlins and the Cardinals are the two teams that have seen just how COVID can rip through a team. I don't think they won't call him up. I just think he's too good, and that outfield is so bad they're going to have mm-hmm. to. But the fact that they haven't yet, I think they were, you know, maybe for this series, this series over the weekend that got banged. Um, we'll see what they if they do it in Detroit this week if they even play the series. Um, but that's the one guy I go, you know, maybe you do try to hold him back. You mentioned Howard with the Phillies. That's another team that just spent a week not playing baseball because of all of this. You know. These are the teams where you go, how much do we want to take that risk? I don't think the service time matters because once you're past, it's service time is binary. You either have six years or you don't. So Madrigal having, you know, point, you know, 5.85 years in a couple of years isn't going to matter all that much. Six is what matters. Nobody really does this for arbitration. Nobody should do it for arbitration anymore. The money's just not, it doesn't mean enough. But for actually getting guys up, the Carlson's the one, I'm trying to think of some other. Wander Franco, you want to look at a guy who might have made it up at the start of this this year? The other problem with all these guys, they haven't played. Right. It, it's, it's the rust, really. And there, there were, I was arguing for putting all these guys on your roster. Uh, Torkelson and so was I. Manning and Howard yeah. Franco. But if you're not going to play them every day, then, then you're, there's really no point to do it. So um, I don't know. I, I want to see what the Tigers do. Tigers have been hanging around 500. 
if the Tigers are 500-ish in a month, how would you like to face Boyd, Scooble, Mize, and Manning mm-hmm. in, in all of September? I, I, I'm a big believer that, that the biggest – I know we're up against it, but the biggest welfare program that baseball's ever done is expanding the playoffs to 16 games. There's no team in baseball that can't go 29 and 31 for 60 games. I agree. And I agree on the Tigers. And I think the Tigers, even if they don't make the playoffs, they'd be a heck of a lot more interesting to watch with those three guys Absolutely. in the rotation. Torkelson, Paredes, just heck, call them all up. Maybe you make a surprise run. My guest today has been Joe Sheehan. You can find his work and his email newsletter, to which I strongly recommend you subscribe, at joesheehan.com. Joe, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Keith. That's all for this week's show. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to my guest, Joe Sheehan. Again, if you are not a subscriber to The Athletic, but you would like to get a subscription, a brand new subscription, you can get 40% off by going to theathletic.com slash K-L-A-W. If you are not a subscriber to the podcast, but you just happen to hear this one, you can find us on find the podcast on The Athletic site, on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, multiple other places where you can find podcasts. If you do listen and subscribe on iTunes, please leave us a positive review. Five stars if you're really enjoying it. I have seen many of your reviews and comments on there. I want to say I appreciate them all. Thanks so much for listening. Wear your masks. Stay safe.